Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be going over Calvinist hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics is a weird word. I mean, it just sounds funny to say hermeneutics, but uh, don't let that word scare you. It just means how do you read the Bible? How do you interpret the Bible? In the article that we're going to be going over today, this is going to be a continuation of last week's podcast, is by a Calvinist, and his next section is on hermeneutics. And what this does is it gives us a very interesting insight to the Calvinist brain, how they function when they approach the Bible. Of course, the article we're going over is entitled An Examination of Open Theism, and this is by Greg Cantelmo. I've been saying Cantelmo. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation. But if someone knows the guy and I'm pronouncing it all wrong, just don't hate me over pronunciation. There's other better reasons to hate me. But this is interesting because Cantelmo, he writes a section on hermeneutics, and it's from a Calvinist perspective, and he contrasts it with open theism. So this is a very valuable article just from the Calvinist perspective because it's written with open theism in mind when they're explaining their mentality, their process, how they read the Bible. And let's look at this first line that's in his text. Rules of interpretation, this is under the section called hermeneutics, Rules of interpretation lie at the root of any theological conclusions based on reading and the study of the Bible. And I take a little bit exception to his first sentence. We're not off to a very good start now, are we? So what is wrong with what he just said? I mean, granted, there's rules of interpretation for everything we do in our normal conversation with people like a coworker. There's rules for understanding what they're saying, their body language, what their body language is telling you, if their body language matches up with the words they say, what kind of context interprets that. There's rules and interpretation for everything. But we usually don't go around labeling everything we do as hermeneutics. It's only when you come to the Bible do people start talking about specialized ways of reading that's different than normal literature and normal conversational interactions between people, just normal interactions. When you're talking to your friend Bob, it's not like you're saying, oh, I have to interpret this in a special way. You use the same rules of interpretation that you would for anything else. And usually that's based on contextual clues. And that's my position, that when we approach the Bible, we shouldn't be treating it any different than we treat the Iliad or the Odyssey or any other ancient Near East texts or even modern literature. Modern literature, you understand what you're reading when you read it. You don't have to impose specialized rules upon it. And to illustrate the absurdity by which Calvinists approach the Bible, I did make a YouTube video, and it's called A Calvinist Reads Pride and Prejudice. And it basically mirrors how the Calvinist approaches the Bible, turning to random pages, grabbing out random proof texts, and imposing flatly absurd ideas on those proof texts that are ripped out of context, and then denying the narrative, what's actually happening in the plot. It's a pretty good YouTube video. I crack myself up when I go back and watch these things. But uh, hopefully you'll find it interesting as well. I think it's funny. And hopefully as we read this section in this Cant Elmo's uh, article, people will understand why I made that video and what it means, and that people actually think like that, especially when approaching the Bible. They like to grab out these random proof texts, pull them out of context, and then impose these metaphysical meanings where none is implied in the context of the text that they grabbed out. Then they deny the plot. They deny the plot. And we'll read 
what this guy says. And it's going to be pretty evident that th- that's exactly what this guy admits to doing. Cantelmo writes, The hermeneutics of the open theists brings to the scriptures their presumptions of what the scriptures ought to teach and then proceed to teach it. What? Okay, that, that's, that's absurd. And it's demonstrably absurd. Demonstrably absurd. And let, let's, let's turn to his very, very next sentence. He talks about narrative priority. And he doesn't like this idea of narrative priority. Let's listen to what he says. Most of the biblical case for open theism comes from the narrative type passages. You know the passages of what God says and what God does? He's saying, oh, we can't, we can't listen to those. We can't take those as priority. The actions of God as described in the Bible, things that he says and does, we can't put those at priority. We need to reject the stories about God in favor of what? And let's listen to what he says. We need to reject the stories about God in favor of. Those are the passages that through story describe what God does. Primacy is given to narrative descriptions rather than didactic teaching. So many things can be said right now. So many things. So he thinks that all the stories about God in the Bible are false. He does. He thinks they have to be reread in light of what he calls didactic texts. He takes two different parts of the Bible. He claims there's these didactic texts and he claims there's this narrative story. And then he claims that they're in opposition to each other. And he's admitting that there's tension. He, if, if one text has to take priority over another text, there's tension there. There's contradiction there. So right off the bat, and in this article, he claims that the open theists are against biblical inerrancy. But right off the bat, he's rejecting the narrative of the Bible. He's rejecting what God says and what God does. And he's putting the text in opposition to itself. I don't have to do anything like that. Not with standard reading comprehension techniques. You don't have to put texts in conflict with each other. There's not this specialized uh, didactic teachings and narrative texts. Yeah, there's stories in the Bible. And then there's some theological text or there's texts that talk about who God is, they're not in conflict with each other. It's a manufactured conflict. And the conflict has to be manufactured because Calvinism is self-contradictory. They need to figure out a mechanism by which they can reject large swaths of the Bible, large swaths, things that God says, things that God does. They can't have it standing at face value. They need a way, a method to explain it away. And you see this in the writings of Augustine, You see this in the writings of the early church fathers. They're very apologetic about the Bible. They want to appeal to pagans. They want to convert pagans to Christianity. And they do so by rejecting the Bible in favor of philosophy. Oh, I know the Bible says this, but you got to read it with this spiritual light. And then guess what? The Bible's not absurd anymore, and we can accept the Bible. And that's what he does here. He's doing the exact same thing as these paganizers who turned Christianity into a paganized religion that championed philosophy over the Bible. And that's his hermeneutics. Cantelmo writes, This means that those passages that describe what God does are given greater interpretive weight than those passages that describe what God is like. I agree with Erickson who says, I would propose that the general rule to be followed is that the teachings about what God is like should be the explanation of what he appears to be doing in any given situation. All right, I got kids. My kids are great kids. They're very nice. They're very thoughtful. 
they are not wild and crazy. But I'm telling you this, and if you, I brought my kid over to your house, and then my kid starts crying and throwing a fit, you wouldn't take all the descriptions that I just gave to you and say, oh, this must uh, fit with those descriptions somehow, so my son is probably just play acting for some to like help someone out. You're not going to do that. That that's insane. That's an insane thing to think. Instead, instead you're going to understand what I'm talking about are generalities. I'm describing character. And yeah, sometimes you do things that don't fit general descriptors of of who you are. If my kids are nice and obedient, that doesn't mean that one exception to the rule overthrows that. And that doesn't mean that everything they do, I got to interpret in this weird sense where even if they're whining, I have to reinterpret that as if they're obeying me and being nice and being calm and being respectable to adults. That That's nuts. No one thinks like that. The only people who think like that are these Calvinists, this Kant Elmo, and this Erickson who think that a general description about God needs to rule out any counterexamples that they ever come across in the Bible. And what's really funny about this is that they're bringing their own prejudices and their own interpretations onto those general descriptors. Now, I admit, open theists do this too. They say God is love, and then they see God destroying the Hittites, the Jebusites, and all the little ites, all the people that God commands Israel to go in and just kill a lot of them basically massacred of the people in the promised land. And then they'll come up with these crazy interpretations why that was uh, loving rather than what it really is. It's, it's justice. It's uh, global justice against a people group for their utter rebellion. But they'll go through tremendous lengths to try to make that into a loving action that fits their definition of what it means to be loving. Guess what? The word means what it means to the author of the word. So if someone says someone's loving, that doesn't mean that it must fit your definition of loving. It doesn't mean that it has to fit modern American definitions of loving. It just fits whatever the author was meaning at that time. And it could be a generality. You know, people often talk in generalities about other people. I just used my kids as an example. If I have a coworker who's nice, that doesn't mean if he has a bad day and throws uh, a temper tantrum on the phone and uh, harasses a customer. That doesn't mean that overrides any of my descriptors of him. And doesn't mean, and it absolutely does not mean, that I reinterpret any counterexamples in light of love. That's not how descriptors work. Only in this crazy world where people approach the Bible does that happen. And it would be a huge, huge mistake if I said that my coworker was good, my coworker is loving, and then people interpret that in a metaphysical sense, that his very essence is loving, that his substance is that's that's not how these things work, and there's no justification to just, just bring these weird metaphysical senses to what's being described. Is there anything in the context of what I said that warrants that sort of mystical interpretation, that metaphysics that you're just imposing on how I describe my kids or my coworkers or people I know. It's nonsense. The world doesn't work like that. Communication doesn't work like that. And that is what is being championed by these Calvinists, Erickson and Kant Elmo. One very good example of this is Malachi 3. God says, 
I, the Lord, do not change, thus you are not destroyed. And Calvinists, they'll point to this and say, see, this is God's metaphysics. God is purely immutable. What, what, what is happening in the context? God is speaking. You know, remember Augustine, he said that God's not, uh, God can't speak. Because speaking implies mutability because there's change. And so God has to use paracreatures. But in the text, which Calvinists claim is a metaphysical claim of God that he's immutable, he is speaking these words, number one. And in the context, he says, if you repent, then I'll repent. So it's a repentance text. And in context, he's not talking about, you know, my metaphysical essence never, ever changes. Instead, in the context, he's saying, you guys are so evil, Israel. I should destroy you. I should. But guess what? I got this promise that I need to fulfill. And I'm not going to go back on my promise. And in that sense, I do not change. I'm not going to go back on my promises. And that is why I don't just kill you all like I should, like I want to. I want to kill you all, but uh, my integrity is not going to allow that. It's not a metaphysical text in the least. And Calvinists, they rip it off context. They make it not make sense in context. What does that mean? I, the Lord, do not change, thus you are not destroyed. Throughout the Bible, God destroys all sorts of people groups. So what does immutability have to do with not destroying someone? What does the context mean? Why you, you can't just grab these random phrases out and then apply absurd metaphysical concepts onto them and just paste them back into the text like, like it's nothing. And referencing my Calvinist Reads Pride and Prejudice video, you notice how they just turned random pages in the Bible. This middle of Malachi, who reads Malachi? And they say, look at this. Here is our verse on immutability. This random passage in the middle of nowhere pulled out of context and uh, light years, light years after the bulk of the Bible has already been written. And that's when we get our immutability texts about God's immutable substance. Before then, they were out of luck. They just had to wait and wait and wait until they got to Malachi. And then all of a sudden, there it is. There's the proof text. If only they pull that little phrase out of context and impose a lot of metaphysical properties onto that little proof text that they pulled out of concept. See, then ancient Israel, they too would understand that God is immutable in essence. Do you see what kind of crazy hermeneutics that Calvinists must must uh, adhere to in order to force Calvinism into the Bible? In order to force negative theology into the Bible? in order to force these metaphysical concepts into the Bible. They don't belong in the text. They have to manufacture this false conflict between the teaching texts and the narrative texts. They, they say they're different than each other, and one has to be given priority. Open theists do not have to do this. They do not. Some do, but open theists do not have to. This cracks me up. This cracks me up. Cantelmo writes... Rather than using narrative passages to understand and develop a doctrine of God's sovereignty, one should look to passages such as Romans 9, whose purpose is to teach that doctrine. This holds true as well with the doctrine of foreknowledge. Romans 9? Turn to Romans 9. Everyone turn there. Read Romans 9. What is it? It's a compilation of God's activities. It's a compilation of the narrative texts throughout the Old Testament, and it's it's saying that these are true narratives, that these narratives, in conjunction, prove a point. And Cantelmo, he wants to reject the narrative as priority. 
Paul uses the narrative to build his theology on. And that's the normal thought process, normal, rational people. They go from specific examples and then, then they craft generalities. To move from generalities and then impose them over specific counterexamples, that's the wrong way of thinking. Paul doesn't do it. In Romans 9, in the proof text that Kant Elmo he cites, that's not what Paul does. Paul goes from specific examples and then draws a general statement based on individual pieces of evidence. When we say that our coworker Bob is nice, I don't actually have a coworker named Bob, it's just kind of a generic name. But when we say our coworker Bob is nice, we didn't just magically appear with that descriptor out of nowhere. What we did is we observed Bob for a time. We observed him so much so that we felt comfortable with him and we felt like we knew his character enough to give him a general statement of character. We were able to characterize him based on our experience and our examples of dealing with him. The Bible's no different. The Bible's no different. Ancient Israel, they looked at what God said and what God did in the Bible, and then they made characterizations of God based on that. Look throughout the Bible. What does God always do? God points to his past acts as evidence that God has power to do future acts. God points to specific point examples in the past to prove his character. That's how characterizations work. This is just common sense we're dealing with here. Just do a text search in the Bible on the word Egypt. How many times does God point to the fact that God is the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. He continually references that point specifically when dealing with Israel to to prove to Israel that he is powerful and he is capable and he is their God and he will protect them. So the past predicts the future, not generalities. He doesn't uh, cite his metaphysical nature. that's That's not found in the Bible. The only place you find that is in a Calvinist systematic theology textbook in these articles against open theism. This idea is completely foreign just to our normal way of living, our normal way of dealing with information. It doesn't work like that. There is one more place you'll find it. Of course, in the works of the Neoplatonists. And just like the Bible and Calvinists, these Neoplatonists, they took the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer and they said, we can't just read these texts straightforward. We have to read special truths in these texts, truths that fit our theology. And no, Homer wasn't a polytheist. He believed in the one God who's immutable and above time and space. And they read that into the Iliad and Odyssey. You do that today, people will think you're nuts. But do that with the Bible, and people will praise you for being a biblical scholar. And apparently I don't have a podcast yet on 1 Samuel 15, but that's where he turns. And this is just a clear example of his poor thinking about this issue. Cantelmo writes, A common example of this poor hermeneutic is the open theist's use of 1 Samuel 15. Open theists emphasize the narrative portions of this chapter involving God regretting he has made Saul king. 1 Samuel 15, 11, and 35 while marginalizing the didactic portion that clearly teaches that God is not like a man that she, he should change his mind. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine, And I love that he uses this example because this is a clear 
clear indication that he's just being irrational when approaching the text. So much so that our, an Arminian wrote an article about her shock when the Calvinist rejected the normal reading comprehension of this chapter. One of my favorite articles in the world is by Amanda McCannis of Cheeseware and Theology, and she writes this. As I watched and listened and read, I learned a valuable lesson. Just because a person is an academic with a PhD and has written a book does not mean that they are objective. They are not always fair to their opponent's argument or even scripture. I learned very quickly that the presuppositions, and I must be right, are very often at the heart of theological arguments. Take, for example, the following scenario I observed at a conference. One scholar stood up and presented an argument that I have since heard time and time again. God does not repent, relent, regret, change his mind. Scripture says so. See, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29. There you have it. Proof. A well-respected Old Testament scholar stood up in response and called the presenter out on his proof. In 1 Samuel 15, there are three statements. God says, I am grieved I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. 1 Samuel 15, 11. Samuel the prophet says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29. The narrator says, And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. 1 Samuel 15, 35. The Old Testament scholar then called the presenter out on hermeneutics 101. Who is to be trusted most? God, the narrator, a character in the narrative? Answer, God and the narrator are always right. Characters can and do lie. Then he pointed out that Samuel's God does not change his mind lie is in reference to Saul's pleading. God has changed his mind about making Saul being king, but he won't change it back. The presenter hemmed and hawed and blustered. The entire room knew that the Old Testament scholar was right. In a later context, the presenter would accuse the Old Testament scholar of being an open theist sympathizer. Gasp the horror. And there I sat, an innocent theology student, shocked and stunned. How could the presenter not know this? How could the presenter talk about the integrity of scripture and yet blatantly proof text? This is a person with a PhD. This is a professor. So the author of that excerpt that I just read is an Armenian. She's not an open theist, but she was able to witness a Calvinist trying to use this proof text for immutability and is instantly shot down by someone saying that the statement is understood in context. In context, there's a better understanding for what is meant. Not metaphysics. You don't pull it out of context. You don't just force it to be in opposition to the other statements. Statements by God and the narrator. Statements by God and the narrator are rejected by Calvinists in favor of a statement by Samuel. And guess what happened in the text? Saul rebels against God. God regrets making Saul king. Samuel tells Saul about this and says, I'm taking the kingdom from you. And then Saul He's like, uh, I repent. I don't want the kingdom taken from me. I'm so sorry. And then Samuel says, you know what? God's not a man that he should repent. What's that in reference to? It's a reference to God's repenting of making Saul king. God's not going to repent and change his mind back. Samuel is not stopping for uh, ad hoc metaphysics lesson. He's not like, let's sit down and talk about metaphysics. 
God's inherent character is unchanging and he can't change in the least or be affected even though he just changed his mind about making you king. Let's ignore that part and let's talk about metaphysics. Calvinists honestly believe that Samuel is sitting Saul down for a lesson on metaphysics. That's nuts. And then later in the chapter, the narrator, the narrator says that God changed his mind. Exact same words every single time. And Kant Elmo writes that the open theist hermeneutic is poor hermeneutics. It is common reading comprehension that everyone sees that you're blatantly abusing the text when you try to make your point. Anyone who's a fair, objective observer looking at this text knows that this is not a proof text for immutability. It's not an impromptu metaphysics lesson, and it counters God, and it counters the narrator, and it just does not make sense. You can't pull out this little phrase out of context and try to make it into your theological bedrock. You're trying, don't you have a better proof text? Don't you have something in the Bible where someone lays out the metaphysics in some sort of treatise? No, you have to pull statements out of context, out of narratives, and then let the context have no effect on the meaning of the phrase that you just pulled out of context. Great. Cantelmo's next criticism is Open Theist's Interpretive Center, which he says is love. And a lot of Open Theists use love as an interpretive center, so I don't fault him very much on that. But there's a lot of Open Theists who don't as well. Walter Brueggemann, no one's going to claim that he misreads the Bible with an interpretive center of love. No, that's a mistake no one who's familiar with Brueggemann is going to make. So his, his points against a subset of open theists, and you know it's valid to the extent that it uh, affects that subset. Cantelmo's next criticism is about discourse analysis. He writes, The case for openness rests on a running survey of biblical passages. Thomas states, this technique seeks a larger picture in a passage before investigating the details. In fact, it disparages traditional methods that investigate the details first before proceeding to the larger picture. Thomas has coined this hermeneutical hopscotch. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either you shotgun proof text saying you, God's repentance is all over the Bible, like everywhere. I could quote you all day passages in which God repents of things he thought to do, things he said he is going to do, and then he repents. And they'll say, well, you're just taking all those out of context. Or you could stop and you could take them one by one. I like the one by one approach and it forces them to try to use their best proof text first. And if their best proof text falls flat, that means all their other shotgun texts you could ignore because they're just not treating the text honestly. So I like the detail first rather than the broad overview, but that's more of a personal preference. Kent Telmo writes, by selecting only parts parts of the Bible, that support a predetermined opinion, this method can demonstrate just about anything the interpreter desires to prove. Well, yeah, so give me the proof text of Calvinists that open theists have not addressed in detail, and then I'll take you more seriously. But just pretending that there's these proof texts out there that don't actually exist and have, and, and the texts they do give, like Isaiah and like Romans 9, you know, there are common sense answers to their proof text that show that the proof text doesn't mean what they're trying to make those proof text means. Just normal reading comprehension leads us to those conclusions. And we got podcasts on Romans 9 and on Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, which is their Isaiah proof text that they usually go over a bunch of chapters trying to claim that these are foreknowledge, predestination proof texts. They're not. They're not, if you read the context. 
I like a challenge. If you're a Calvinist and you think that open theists ignore a certain set of texts or set of verses and you want me to go over them, I will. Because I like a challenge. I'll do that. I'll put a podcast out there. I'm going to show that your forced interpretation of these texts are not only not not usually not even the most rational option of available options when reading this text, what the text means. Cantelmo then criticizes Boyd for when God asks questions, and uh, Cantelmo says, you know, these questions where God's like, how long will Israel keep rebelling against me? And Cantelmo says, those are just rhetorical questions meant to inspire repentance. Repentance by who? Who was it said to? Did it inspire repentance? No, it wasn't said to the people that Cantelmo thinks God was trying to get to repent, and no, it did not inspire repentance. So if it's a rhetorical question that God's giving, it's a rhetorical question in vain, not directed to anyone in particular, and no one repented. So it's a terrible rhetorical question. I cover more of that in my written version of my response to this article by Cantelmo. But uh, we're about out of time, so thank you for listening to uh, my thoughts on hermeneutics today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.